turn on the thing and hold it for precisely the right amount of seconds, otherwise the screen wouldn't work. What the fuck? That is the that is the worst crap top ever. I thought mine was useless when I could use the so, USB ports. So my solution oh, to this bruh, was to keep that's... it turned on the whole time. So it was on from about January to May without ever being turned off. Oh my god. And on, one, on some occasions I actually went out and left it on overheating. I thought, oh shit, what if the building turns down? I mean, I always leave my computer on. I probably yes, should. But you're, 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 I doubt your computer is, you know, a potential, you know, fire hazard. I mean, mine has free fans, so I guess. Basically, if you want to reimagine mine, just imagine the Hindenburg seconds before it caught fire. Now imagine that on a desk <laughs> for five months. What the fuck? Or Why did you not just get a new dance. computer? Well, I was, I, I was in the States. Yeah, but you, yeah. I had like a sad amount of money and I, I had America, to America, surely you could have found a decent computer. I mean, yeah, money's hard, but like, I don't know, suck some dick and get some money. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, that's almost no shit. I had, to buy, I had to buy, actually, a second suitcase <laughs> to fit all the stuff I, I bought uh, home. So, oh, you know, in the states, some of their their textbooks are, they get you, you have to buy it all. So you're spending like about a hundred dollars yeah. at least. Or you yeah. could just do the smart thing and type in the name of the book and then PDF on Google. Oh, no, 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 because, because they set specific parts of it to read, and so it might be a different edition, and they won't uh, tell you what exact section it is. Because I had a class on physical theory, and the guy set specific lines on a book that was not in Google Books. And you did a test on it every day of the week. What subject was this? This sounds like hell. It was politics. You should know. Oh. It's, it's hell. I mean, I'm first year. Oh, it gets worse. It gets worse. <laughs> Why do you think I dropped the politics half of my degree? Now I, I do a really important subject like history. <laughs> <laughs> well, for last week, I, I had to read uh, about... Uh, 300 pages worth of whiteness studies and it was the most painful thing I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you're, you're, you're sitting in like when a, like a, um, uh, a team's chat and then the lecturer said, oh, so what ideas have you got? And I'm like, well, I'm interested in uh, political history in Britain around this time. And then the person's like, oh, I, I'm interested in the white supremacy of British fashion in the 1930s. Huh. Uh huh. Right. Okay, that sounds fun. Because some of them are really oddly specific. Because I, I had a, a tutor a few years ago. He had to sit for his friend doing a presentation on theirs, and it was like child sex abuse in Victorian Britain. And he just sat there thinking, "You had to get primary sources for this. Why?" And thus, we're doing designer babies tonight. That's that's interesting. Who's speaking? What if I wanted to find out earlier? <laughs> huh. I mean, to be fair, like, Based on his usual mic problems, are you really that surprised? 
Yeah, you can't stop. Dragon's Lair is rising. <laughs> yeah, we, we won't be defeated. <laughs> we won't be defeated. We're taking over. Oh no, I'm just not going to uh, notify the authorities until after the debate. We need you until nine. <laughs> that was so weirdly ominous. <laughs> I'm sure we could pay somebody on the minimum wage. Probably. Try, It's not like they're human; they're just university students. Hello. Uh, <laughs> so sorry, it took so long. It's my laptop literally Resign. would not turn on, so I finally fixed it. I'll be two seconds. The static has just joined. Just uh, for a... Where the hell's this static come from? It is, it's been held in by my finger. Okay. Hey, hello everyone, thank you for joining us um, for our debate tonight. Sorry about the delay starting. Um, my laptop as a trusty Apple Mac refused to start. Um, so I will get going five, in a second. <laughs> um, doo -doo -doo -doo. Doo -doo -doo. Okie dokie. Okay, um, so thank you everyone for joining us. Um, thanks for coming along. Uh, I'd like to start tonight's meeting now by inviting Mr. Matthew Sullivan, our secretary, to give us the minutes, please. Okay. Uh, where do I spotlight myself? I've forgotten. You have been spotlighted. <laughs> ah, I just say the word and it happens. I'm a genius. On the 12th of November 2020, the Queen's University of Belfast Literary and Scientific Society convened for the seventh ordinary meeting of its 172nd session for the motion, this house believes sex work is not real work. Wait a second. This house regrets coronavirus lockdowns and it was the eighth ordinary meeting. As usual, the meeting began with announcements from President Matt Lee. The first great debate was announced to be held on Monday the 16th on the motion, this house regrets the decriminalization of abortion in Northern Ireland. This was followed by the reading of the minutes and a vote on the appointment of Councillor Seamus Defici to the Literific Trust. The vote of prior opinion was held with, oh wait, no, I, sorry, these minutes are badly written this week. The vote in the appointment of Councillor Shims Tafici had 18 ayes, one nay, and three abstentions. This was followed by private members' business, 
where Grant Warren raised the confirmation of Joe Biden as president-elect of the United States and asked how much the House believed the Biden administration would actually be able to achieve. Responses were heard from Ben McCarran, James Orchin, Kira Swale, Emily Monroe, Alton McSparren, Luke Holmes, President Emeritus Matthew Bradley HLM, Umar Ziam, and Michael Kaczynski. Mark Gilmore brought up the extension of the current lockdown by the executive and the lateness of information given to businesses, and responses to that were heard from Grant Warren, Emily Monroe, and James Orchin. This was followed by President's questions, and then the vote of prior opinion, for which there were 12 votes for the proposition, eight votes for the opposition, and five abstentions. Speaking first for the proposition was Ryan Hoey. He began by saying that the proposition wanted to maximize both life and quality of life, advocating for social distancing, mask wearing, and good hand hygiene. He spoke about the effect that lockdown had on other illnesses, arguing that people were reluctant to avail of existing health services due to fear caused by the lockdown. He additionally spoke on the effects of mental health, pointing out that rates of mental illness had doubled over the lockdown and on the economic effects of the lockdown, arguing that the drastic effects of the lockdown on unemployment and poverty were more damaging overall than the pandemic itself. Speaking first for the opposition was Oliver Long. He argued that while the government can alleviate economic effects on individuals with welfare, failing to lock down early would have caused health services to become overwhelmed and would have resulted in far more deaths than we actually saw. He additionally argued that lockdown had protected those who were at greater risk from the disease, saying that it would be unfair to force these people to stay shielded at home indefinitely while the rest of us spread the disease around. He concluded by saying that it wasn't possible to just avoid lockdown by increasing NHS funding, pointing out that it was impossible to just magic up doctors and nurses from the air. Speaking second for the proposition was Caelan McNally. He stated that the lockdowns implemented by the UK government had disproportionately armed minorities and those worse off in society, as well as the world's poor. He argued that the isolation of the white middle class professionals was made possible only by the class of workers, including retail and care workers, who often go without essential equipment and who have to expose themselves to additional risk. He advocated for alternatives to lockdown, including robust contact tracing. Speaking second for the opposition was Kira Swale. She argued that even at the levels of infection seen during the lockdown, the hospital system was overwhelmed, saying that if we hadn't gone into lockdown, infection rates would have been far higher and the health system would have collapsed entirely leading to far more deaths. She further pointed out that there was very little information about the long-term effects of the coronavirus, arguing that there was no telling how much damage a strategy of letting all the young people get infected to create herd immunity would have. Speaking third for the proposition was Umar Ziyam. He pointed out that the death rate for COVID-19 was minuscule and that it mainly only killed the elderly, arguing that it makes no sense to lock down the young and the healthy who keep the economy going. He argued advocated for alternatives to lockdown, such as quarantining those entering the country, contact tracing, and encouraging people to live a healthy lifestyle, saying that these things had all been neglected by the government. He further argued that the lockdown had heavily restricted the liberties of the British people, and that the government had acted with a complete disregard for the restrictions on the power afforded to them. Speaking third for the opposition and concluding the debate was Alcon McSparren. He began by saying that lockdowns had helped save millions of people worldwide. He argued that the fact that almost every country on the planet had implemented a lockdown indicated that lockdowns must have some merit. He argued that the disproportionate effects of lockdown on those worse off in society wasn't the fault of the lockdown itself, but was instead indicative of underlying issues in society, issues that would remain even after the lockdown. 
Finally, he attacked the idea of herd immunity, saying that a huge percentage of the population would have to catch the disease before herd immunity was accomplished, and that this would cause a huge number of deaths. Questions were heard from Michael Kaczynski, Grant Warren, James Orchin, Keir Crozier, and Ben Cavan. Finally, the vote of speaker ability was held, with 12 votes for the proposition, 6 votes for the opposition, and 5 abstentions, meaning that the motion was carried, and this House did in fact regret coronavirus lockdowns. May I take the minutes as read? Aye. I'll take that as a yes. Unanimous vote. Thank you. As we always do. Thank you, Matthew, for the minutes there. Thank you. Um, I forgot to mention some of our future events that are going ahead. So I'll just quickly run through those now. We have two upcoming Lit Talks. That's the talks at the Literific where you get to ask uh, questions and challenge figures that shape our society. The next one is on Friday, the 27th of November at 6 p.m. And that is Ian Blackford, the leader of the SNP at Westminster. And after that, the 4th of December at 6 p.m. again, Lit Talk with Julian Smith, the former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So they are some good events uh, that you really want to tune into. And I think the final thing uh, from announcements point of view is if you haven't noticed, I have a lovely moustache. Uh, so I'm doing uh, Movember for our uh, charity, um, the Welcome Organisation. Um, so I'm sure Ryan will tell you more about that uh, and our Movember campaign appeal that we'll be launching. What's this? The Movember that you wanted to do. Well, I don't want to do it. Well, if anyone's noticed, <laughs> if, if, it's too late for me to do it. If anyone's noticed, Matt has now grown a moustache. So we were talking last night and we're like, might as well just make this into a charity thing. So. Uh, yeah, Matt can carry on growing his moustache and then you all can send your money to uh, our brilliant charity, The Welcome Organisation. So apparently that's an announcement there. <laughs> OK, thank you. So now we turn to the bit of the evening, which is where you get to raise any business that you may have seen in the last few weeks, any um, news items that you think the House should discuss or anything in general that's on your mind that you want the opinion of your fellow members. Um, so does anyone have any piece of private members business? Please raise your hand now using the raise your hand function. Yep, uh, we'll go with Jack McAfee. Thank you. I, uh, um, I was looking at some of the news recently and I heard, I just want to get opinions on this, see what everyone's kind of thinking. Uh, apparently Iran broke the nuclear weapons deal and there's rumors that they have enough uranium to make two nuclear weapons. Apparently the White House was looking at some shape or form of strike on the White House and I heard that Trump had to be talked out of uh, launching a strike on Iran. Just wanted to know what people think if we're going to get a World War Three. <laughs> Any opinions on this? Uh, yes, Grant Warren. Yeah, I think uh, Trump and Iran uh, don't exactly have the rosiest relationship because I think if everyone remembers like the impending World War Three that everyone thought we were going to have in January before COVID was was a widespread thing and you know the the standoff they had thereafter and uh, he killed Soleimani um, through a missile strike so and the de-escalation. I think um, the Iran nuclear deal was basically a, an appeasement of Iran and I think that. A new settlement needs to be reached because you, you see the, the kind of the West's approach towards Iran, and yet they still chant death to America, regardless of how generous the West has been. So I, I think the Western countries need to toughen up their approach, particularly EU countries and Germany and France. 
Thank you for that, Grant. Any other uh, opinions on this? Uh, James Olchin, I saw that you raised your hand if you want to get involved. Um, I mean, what I was going to say was, as, as being said, really, I was just going to say that, you know, I'm old enough to remember a time long, long ago when COVID wasn't a thing and we were all going to get drafted in for World War Three, when we were all going to get deployed into Iran and going to take out the mullahs in Iran. You see, I, I don't really ever trust really talk with you and there being an impending World War Three. Um, I just sort of think, yeah, I, I don't think World War Three is going to be breaking out. And while I do believe potentially, yes, Trump may have wanted maybe to, you know, launch a few missiles into the men's room in Tehran. I just don't think that really it's it's likely that we're going to see a war break out. I'm, I'm fully prepared for a war to break out this evening and be proven completely wrong. But as things currently stand, it does not seem likely, my view. Any other opinions on this, the kind of uh, the, the nuclear developments in Iran and also, yeah, it was briefed that Trump had to be talked out of a strike against Iran. Any other opinions on this? No, any other pieces of private members business that anyone else has? James Orchard. Um, this is been a new story that's really been developing over the past few weeks uh, with relation to France. It was today that President Macron said he, he, he wanted uh, Muslim leaders in the country to agree to, I think it was described as a charter of Republican values, that apparently um, in his view uh, there's a sort of a separate nation within uh, promoted by Islam in the country. I'm just wondering if anyone has an opinion on this. So, yes, this is uh, Macron's uh, kind of uh, attacks, uh, as some have seen, against uh, the ideological background of fundamental Islam within France in respect to the recent terror attacks. Emily Monroe. Yeah, this is an interesting one. I mean, France certainly has quite an interesting recent history um, in regards to... I guess, Islamic-related terrorism and then the government response to it. Um, but this, I mean, it just seems pretty openly Islamophobic to me. Macron is creating a lot of problems for himself in this, I feel. Um, he didn't outright win his election in the first round when he came into power. Um, and it ended up that he was against quite a far-right opponent. I think what he is doing now is just making it easier for her to be elected president the next time around. Um, he built himself as a centrist. He mm, maybe hasn't lived up to that in a way that most people have wanted him to. Um, so I'm intrigued to see sort of how the reaction to all of this plays out in the next French election, because I feel that he will have whipped up enough, I guess, fear of Islam within France. But then people will be willing to elect someone who has a much harder line against it. And that will probably lead to the National Front taking power. Thank you, Emily. Uh, Grant Warren. Yeah, just a few points to pick up on what Emily said. I, I do understand from a certain perspective why it would seem that Macron is being, you know, Islamophobic. But this, his attacks on radical Islam, it's not the attacks on Islam as the religion. He's attacking a very hardcore sect of Islam in France, which 
people in France have a very good reason to, you know, we all know France's experience with radical Islam in recent years. Um, he's defending the principle of laicite, which is in the constitution of the Fifth Republic, and has been a long-standing principle where the state and um, does not favour any one religion and does not tolerate any one religion to, you know, kind of have this groundswell of influence in society. So I think Macron has done a good thing that other Western leaders have not been able to do, and that is stand up to radical Islam. And far from, as Emily suggested, cause a rise in support for the National Front, I think this will let people see that Macron and his opinion polls have actually risen in, the, in, in light of this standing up to Islam. I think it will show that they have a president who's willing to take on such a big problem that has not been dealt with sufficiently to this point. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. Um, I'm now going to turn to Umar Ziam, who's currently stood in my kitchen. So. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. And uh, I'd just like to say, as someone from a Muslim background, one of the biggest threats to uh, Muslim communities and uh, Muslim people, ethnic minority uh, people of Muslim backgrounds, particularly in the West and in countries where they're minorities, one of the biggest tre threats to these people. Uh, is Islamic extremism and uh, I'd, I'd just like to say I entirely agree with the uh, last speaker in that uh, Macron is right to tackle the hardline Islamic extremists who are trying to motivate and encourage uh, acts of violence and uh, encouraging people to effectively join ISIS. Uh, I think it's entirely right that uh, Macron is doing this particularly because uh, rise, in, rise uh, in support for the National Front uh, is fueled by inaction towards extremism and uh, particularly Islamic extremism. And if it's made clear that uh, a centrist, moderate politician like Macron will not stand uh, for extremism, I think it will be, I think the threat of a National Front government uh, is far lessened. Thank you, Umar. Um, James Orchin. I think just sort of on some of the things that have been said so far, I'd agree with much of what Emily has said, though it would add the point that the fact he didn't win in the first round is pretty common. Like, no French president has ever won an election in the first round since it was put in place. And I'd also put the point on the point made about secularism is that the French version of secularism is not simply like a separation of church and state, it is quite a hard line form. Of secularism that was put in place deliberately to rub Catholics and the Catholic Church in the face and to annoy them back in uh, 1905 if I'm not mistaken. That, that being said obviously there's no excuse and there should be no excuse made for radical Islamic terrorism but at the same time the, the fact of the matter is though with regards to religion is that the French current French laws with regards to secularism are a product of the early 20th century and attempts to mainly to greatly annoy religious groups within the country and perhaps in some instances it has seen, been seen in the past that some religious groups do find this quite irksome that being said once again to reiterate there is no excuse for what has been done in france in recent years in the name of islam thank you james now finally uh one last opportunity any other pieces of private members business to go through ben cabin your hand shot straight up so I'll go to you 
Yes, thank you, Matt. Um, so, guys, I still feel honoured to have taken part in Monday. Thank you for organising that, Matt, the great debate on abortion. And I just want to ask what the House thinks about the backlash that that debate faced uh, before the event and after it, even uh, with the recent post from Project Choice. So I want to know what people think about the idea of the debating society not being able to host debates. Um, so, yeah. Uh, thank you, Ben, uh, for that. Uh, Jamie Warren. Um, I was reading quite a lot of the comments um, that resulted from the debate, but I completely think that the debate should have gone ahead because it's there's no such thing as a debate without people respecting the opposing opinion. And having these conversations brings to light the fact that not everyone in society agrees on the one thing and it's very sort of easy for things to fall into what would become an echo chamber where people only listen to their sort of own common views and don't listen to the conversations that other people have and anybody that sort of challenged the idea that the debating study could have these debates is possibly quite intolerant. Thank you, Jamie, for that. Um, I'd also encourage if anyone actually thinks that uh, against what's just been said that we, we shouldn't have done it, then please do speak up because it would be good to have your view too. But Jack McAfee, you had your hand up, so go oh, to you. Pretty much just wanted to expand upon kind of what Jamie said because I agree with him a lot. Uh, I heard a bit of the backlash i didn't know much about it but the idea that people were trying to cancel a debate in the debate club just seems inherently anti-free speech when freedom of speech is a value that's very much held in any kind of debating society as it's the idea that any ideas that are good or bad can be debated so it was just a bit weird to me to see that anyone thought that a debate could be cancelled just, it, it just it just kind of it kind of blows my mind i just don't i just don't get it <laughs> thank you uh james orchin you have your hand up i mean having looked at some of the comments i'd just say like a fair number of the people are not the sort of people who go to debating or to the literific so i really personally would not hold much credence in what they say with regards to the literific they can complain but it's sort of like i think it was like what lyndon johnson said is effectively like trying to spit into a a hailstorm it's not really going to cause much of an actual effect thank you for that interesting analogy there james um if anyone else has any other opinions before we move on um no okay um okay well we'll move on there um so anyone have any president's questions these are questions directed to the president about anything at all it could be what i had for breakfast it could not any questions that you may have, please do raise your hand. Jack McAfee, your hand shot straight up. So yeah. what, what did you have for breakfast? Um, I actually had turkey and cranberry sandwiches, which is a bit of an unusual breakfast to have. So. That, that's really nice, though. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, and James Orchin? Um, I wonder if the president could tell us uh, what the last film he has seen and what did he think of it? The last film I saw and what did I think of it? Oh, God. Um, all my flatmates have just giggled because uh, someone in the flat last night put on Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't really, I did, I did not put it on. So I didn't. Um, really what did you think of it? 
I think about uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, you know, I think it is very problematic and shows that a lot of people have deep rooted issues in their lives that they uh, that they have difficulty dealing with. Uh, that's my only comment on that. So thank you for Fred's questions there. James, I, I feel like you were put up to that question by one of my flatmates. Um, so any, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, so now we go to the vote of prior opinions. So this is the vote of the motion as stands without hearing any speakers whatsoever. Um, so the motion is that this house would create designer babies. Um, so as all those right now without hearing any of the speeches agree with that motion, could you raise your hand and say aye, please? Aye. Okay, Mr. Six. Six. Okay, thank you. Could you all lower your hands now? Uh, all those against the motion that would not create designer babies as things stand, please raise your hands and say nay. James Alchin, you have appeared to have voted aye and nay. I, I didn't mean it the first time. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Matthew, you're going to have to deduct one from the eyes. But do you mean it this time? <laughs> I'm going to take sorry, that. Sorry, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to get in a line to vote. I'm doing it unintentionally. Sorry. Seven. Seven. And all those who wish to abstain, could you raise your hands? To <laughs> and that is Mr. Five. And can we get the results of the vote of prior opinion, please, Mr. Five votes for the proposition, seven votes for the opposition, and five abstentions. Looks like the opposition has it. The opposition has it right now, but will this change over the course of the debate? We have some great speakers uh, lined up tonight. So uh, I'll just reiterate the rules because we have uh, at least one uh, main speaker. Um, so our speeches at the Viterific are seven minute speeches. The first and last minutes are protected time. After the first minute, you will hear. And after the sixth minute, on the sixth minute, you will hear. Um, so, yes, please don't break protected time. And barracking, which is the repeated asking of points of information, are not allowed. And a TD, a certain TD, got in trouble for that on Monday. So don't be like him. Um, so now I introduce our first speaker to introduce the argument for the proposition in tonight's debate, uh, Jamie Warren. So thank you, Jamie. Sorry, Jamie, you might meet. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Um, I just want to start by outlining the proposition's argument. So, firstly, I will be dealing with the primary scientific argument as to why the genetic enhancement of embryos improves um, the quality of life for unborn children um, that otherwise could be born with very little quality of life and helps deal with um, infertility issues in couples. Um, following on from that, Jacob will be highlighting numerous benefits of um, a embryological enhancement um, can benefit um, pregnant mothers um, in preventing miscarriage. 
And finally, Ina will be dealing with um, the uh, how the modification of gene editing and how its use can again benefit benefit us all. Um, I just want to pose the question: With all the scientific advancements that the human race has achieved, why shouldn't we use these? Uh, advancements as a force of good. The science of genomics, with the study of the genetic makeup of humans, really began in the late 50s and early 60s, when the work of scientists such as Rosalind Franklin, Morris Wilkins, James Watson, and Francis Crick paved the way towards the discovery of the structure of the DNA double helix. This discovery, when it was first reported on in the scientific journal Nature, revolutionized the way the world, and more importantly, physicians viewed the nature of genetic inheritance specifically the inheritance of particular disorders such as cystic fibrosis, haemophilia and Down syndrome. The opposition will try to argue there's a fundamental ethical issue with the idea of being able to manipulate the genetic makeup of embryos and the unborn, but we, the proposition, just want to make it clear that we are not directly advocating the manipulation of potential human life solely for the purpose of producing offspring for couples that want their children to be born with particular desirable characteristics such as design and hair colour. We believe the creation of so-called designer babies is a misnomer. The argument being put forward is that advancements in medical technologies such as gene therapy and gene editing when used in the appropriate context can only be very beneficial, such as in instances where couples are unable to conceive and the use of techniques such as IVF, which have led to these couples being able to have children, whereas without these techniques in times gone by, combating infertility would have been nigh on impossible. The notion that scientists are simply reckoning with the forces of nature is quite frankly false, as advances in medical research with regards to genetic inheritance have formed the basis for the treatment of many types of cancer, such as pancreatic cancer. This was long thought to be untreatable and had a 100% mortality rate, but is now considered to be a treatable condition due to scientists and physicians not being able to understand mutations in particular genes within a sufferer's DNA gives rise to this type of cancer. Efforts have now been directed into developing therapeutic methods to possibly correct the mutation within the sufferer's genetic code using unmutated normal donor DNA. Last month, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to two scientists, Jennifer Dudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, for their work leading to the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas9 system in 2012. The CRISPR-Cas9 system is a very powerful DNA editing tool that has allowed the successful implementation of donor DNA into the genetic code of targeted unhealthy cells without any complications or side effects arising in patients. This discovery has been called by many as one-off, not the single most important discovery in the field of medical research of the modern era. It is this very CRISPR-Cas9 system of gene editing that led to the first ever reported case of the, genetic, of the birth of a genetically enhanced human by way of the birth of twins Lulu and Nana in China in 2019. This project is devised as a means of solving fertility issues in HIV positive fathers by ensuring that any child conceived by the HIV negative mother could be conferred resistance to the faulty gene, which codes for the reduction of the virus, resulting in the child being born without having inherited this gene from its father. Admittedly, the restricted nature of genetic experimentation allowed by the Chinese government leaves a lot to be desired, but it certainly allowed the global scientific community and the public alike to have a glimpse of the potential that the genetic manipulation of human embryos can have, 
not only in improving the outcomes and standard of life for the unborn, but also for mothers and fathers whose greatest wish in life is simply to be able to have a child of their own. This argument is fundamentally scientific and not moral. I myself, as someone who uh, does not believe that life should be ended prematurely, just want to highlight that these medical benefits are there to enhance life. They're never intended to destroy life and we do not want to remove individuality from children that are to be born. We only want to use this as a tool to help the um, outcomes in not only children that are likely to be born, but in helping couples combat their infertility. My colleagues in the proposition will continue the argument as to why genetic enhancement of embryos when restricted is a powerful tool to be reckoned with, and that the benefits of having this technology outweigh the negatives. I hope that I've convinced the House to vote in line with the proposition on this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie, and congratulations on a brilliant maiden speech. Thank you very much. Um, so now it turns to our first speaker for the opposition to introduce the argument for the opposition, uh, Ben Cavan. Thank you, Ben. Yes, thanks, Matt, and thanks, Jamie, for a great maiden speech. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, we here as the opposition tonight want to say from the start that we think the idea of combating genetic diseases is completely commendable and we respect the proposition for doing so. However, we in the opposition are also the champions against naivety tonight. We want to be realistic, ladies and gentlemen, and point out the dangerous slippery slope that the proposition will claim is us just scaremongering. No, ladies and gentlemen, we are not scaremongering tonight. We are scared of what the impact of designer babies could do to our society and the societal consequences that it could eventually lead to. Not only do we have ethical concerns, but also scientific concerns. Indeed, the Times report that doctors said just because we can change a gene does not mean we know what that change can do. And so the scientific evidence is limited at best. But ladies and gentlemen, the slippery slope comes from the biases embedded in our human nature. Professor Stephen Wilkinson of the Lancaster University said, quote, once the principle of no genetic modification has been abandoned, then we won't have any basis on which to object to genetic modification of any kind. In my speech, ladies and gentlemen, I wanna talk about how the idea of designer babies will lead to drastic consequences for the women and people of black community in our societies. My fellow opposition speakers will be talking about other ethical concerns and ladies and gentlemen, we cannot emphasize enough the slippery slope and the real danger that this argument presents. So first of all, in terms of women, ladies and gentlemen, um, before I get into that point, I just wanna say that this is a relatively new debate. Indeed, it has only really arisen in the last number of years, uh, particularly around China due to experiments of a genetic nature carried out by scientists there as has already been highlighted. And so there are not many statistics around this area in terms of drastic effects. However, we're here to use our common sense, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't think it's very far-fetched to say that this could have drastic effects on the women of our population. 
Indeed, it is clear that a bias exists throughout the world against women. And I think it's ironic that this debate originated from China, a place in which 30 million girls are aborted every uh, since, since it's the one-child policy has been in place there. And also a place in which there is an exception to the one-child policy, whereby if one has a child and wants another one who lives in a rural area, they can do so if that child, that first child, is a girl. The bias against women in China is clear, but it also exists in other places throughout the world. And that, I don't think, is an issue here. But ladies and gentlemen, we will probably be claimed to, for this to be scaremongering, that this is a far-fetched future. And while I don't think that the proposition uh, or advocating for the designer babies I speak of, it is not far-fetched to imagine a world in which this debate starts off as preventing genetic diseases. It then goes a step further to allowing parents to choose how they want their baby to turn out, with choice being so important in our society in this day and age. Once we get the idea of choice implemented in society, then this will lead to a culture in which our human biases are put in our young ones. And this will simply lead on the numbers to an overtly WASP culture, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant majority male culture. Uh, I don't think that there will be much opposition to that point. Uh, not only to our women, but also to those of the black community. Again, like with women, it's common sense that racism is rife throughout our world. And it isn't, sca it isn't scaremongering to picture a world uh, like that of the Nazis in which there is an Aryan race. And I'm sure Mark Gilmore, if he was here a bit, would be clapping right now for me saying that. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, I just mean a world in which uh, designer babies are created uh, so that white people can allow their biases to be shown and highlighted through, through their young. Point of um, interest. Yes, go for it. Um, the scenario you are describing uh, right now, um, allow me to just kind of summarize it. Um, you say that it will lead to a population dominated by wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So I'd like to ask you the question, um, if a black couple go into a doctor's and ask them, uh, we would like our baby to be white or anything like that, how would they go in terms of gene editing so that is known in this process is eliminating any races it is entirely down to the decision of the parents no one here is asking for eugenics program oh and i'm not saying that right from that that, that would happen and of course i don't think that anyone's advocating for that to happen but i'm just pointing to our human biases and how over time that the black population will because of more and more choice of, uh, of white designer babies in the Western world. And this would then disseminate into other areas of the world. So it would be a long process, but not one which is completely impossible or unlikely to imagine, given the racist nature of us humans. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we may be able to cure disease, but is this really the way to go about it? Do we really want to take away the natural nature of human life uh, whenever it could lead to so many dangers? And these dangers clearly outweigh the positives. Indeed, don't let the, don't let the proposition fill you with their talk of heroism, curing disease, 
being the advocates for scientific reason. Ladies and gentlemen, let us be the voice for reason for you tonight. I cannot emphasize enough, this is not just a slippery slope we're talking about here. This is a slippery cliff, ladies and gentlemen, a cliff with a, a, cliff with a sheer edge, one which starts naturally and nice sounding like the proposition we'll make it out tonight, but one which will quickly descend into chaos and a very much broken world due to our human biases. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I really urge you to listen to our argument tonight and to not fall off this slippery cliff, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Ben, and avoid those slippery cliffs where you can. Um, so now I turn to the second speaker for the proposition, Jacob Glenn, to continue the argument for the proposition. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, uh, I want to outline the opposition's uh, point that the choice will slowly increase over time, leading to more drastic changes to uh, the human genome. However, I would disagree because if proper regulation is put into effect, this uh, problem should be entirely avoided uh, as to not let uh, options to get out of hand in the future. Uh, so let's then begin with my first point with Genesis 126 and 127, which speaks of how God created people in his image, making all human life sacred. This may come as a surprise to you, but in fact, this verse advocates for the proposition. This verse implies that human life should be made better or rather to preserve its existence, to, ex to extend the lifespan, uh, to improve our conditions. Uh, this is exactly what gene editing technology does. Uh, designer babies get to live statistically longer lives and in a less in less misery which might have been caused by hereditary diseases this is what god our lord would have wanted for us to come together uh, and make the lives of those who come after us less harrowing and containing less turmoil uh, on to uh, my second point as the first speaker has mentioned the biggest point for the proposition is the fact that many hereditary diseases uh, can be edited out of the germline in our genes, preventing cystic fibrosis as well as Alzheimer's, the spinal muscular atrophy, and many others. I think this point should really be clarified, as it is the technique that can prevent the most suffering in the future. These specific diseases are undeniably, objectively awful and if given the chance, should be removed. Gene editing technology is giving us the chance to do exactly that without much issue in implementation. We only needed to permit a single lab and already leaps and bounds are made in the progression of science and the understanding of the positive outcomes, which are not only very significant, but also groundbreaking. The lab and its work will be introduced in the next point. The baffling thing about this is that that only one gene needs to be altered in order to decrease the chances of these diseases, making the technique not only inexpensive, but also very simple. 
I could go on and on about how awful these diseases are, but I'm sure you already know. The point is that even with just this one benefit of the Sinorabies, the entire world would be a lot a better, a lot better off with fewer people having to suffer due to the due to these hereditary diseases. And on to my third point. Now, let us talk about the aforementioned laboratory. British authorities have become the first in the world to license a gene editing technique on human embryos for research. The Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, HFEA, has approved a research application from the Francis Crick Institute to use uh, CRISPR-Cas9 on human embryos. Although research can only be done on the embryo for the first seven days of its maturity, connections have been uh, found between a gene called OCT4 and the ability for the embryo to properly develop. If you're wondering why I'm going into all this detail, it's because if this gene is deactivated, then it can lead to improper embryo development which can in turn lead to miscarriage. If we can genetically modify an embryo to develop correctly in the womb, it can entirely avoid miscarriage. Statistics from the NHS has, have estimated that 12.5 of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. That means that one out of eight, every eight pregnancies ends in loss. This is truly awful and surely none of us want that. Miscarriage is not only inherently apparent, but also has many side effects on the mother, including, but not limited to, increase in anxiety, stress, depression, and chance of suicide. Further development into the field of genetics, genetic engineering in human embryos, as well as proper application of this technology, could lead to a future where birth can be safer, both for the mother and the child. Refusing to accept this technology would mean to accept the dangers of childbirth instead of trying to mitigate them. And now uh, a quote from Dr. Zhang Zhang, the medical director and CEO of the New Hope Fertility Center. Guidance and regulation should be the cornerstones of any work in this field, without a doubt. To that end, if allowed, this work should receive government support to ensure the application is performed in a safe, and responsible way. Prohibition may delay progress to the detriment of humanity, but support could spark a legacy of genetic health that would allow mankind to flourish for centuries to come. Thank you for listening to my speech. Vote proposition. Thank you, Jacob, for that fantastic maiden speech and congratulations once again on a fantastic maiden speech to the society. So now we turn to another maiden speaker for our second opposition speaker to continue the case for the opposition, uh, which is Sophie Clark. Thank you. To say that there are no benefits to designer babies would be a false statement, particularly regarding what the procedure could do for those who suffer from genetic abnormalities. However, the prospect and these benefits are still years into the future. And what we are currently looking at is what would happen if the house decided to create designer babies now and what impact that would have now. With that in mind, I would like to highlight the controversy surrounding two twin babies called Lulu and Nana, as mentioned before by the proposition, as they are defined as the first ever designer babies. 
The girls were born in 2018 after their parents participated in a clinical project run by Chinese scientist He Zhanghu. The project involved the process of using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD, alongside in vitro fertilization, IVF, and genome editing in order to insert a gene that would provide the children with resistance to HIV. Despite both twins being born healthy, they were still given a resistance to a virus that they could have avoided in a myriad of other ways, particularly as the actual editing wasn't ex executed well. As Zhang Hu only managed to edit half of Lulu's genes, which could potentially mean she's not actually immune to HIV at all, despite the genetic editing. Furthermore, during this project, Zhang Hu reported some mosaicism in other embryos, and this is essentially when someone has two or more genetically different sets of cells in their body, and in some cases this can unfortunately lead to conditions such as mosaic Down syndrome. This emphasises the fact that this type of procedure, even when performed for a medical benefit, is not reliable and quite frankly dangerous. And if the risk is ultimately greater than the reward, why take that chance? The idea that the designer baby procedure is not yet safe was again reinforced in 2015. The controversy surrounding the gene editing tool known as CRISPR to produce children was a key agenda at the International Summit in Human Gene Editing. I think it's important to note that from the very early, early stages of this summit, every speaker present um, agreed that um, making irreversible changes to every cell in the bodies of future children and in turn their descendants would constitute extraordinary human risk for the sake of experimentation. So I ask again, why take that chance? Why gamble on something that nature is perfectly capable of taking care of? Why alter a system that we owe everything to? Especially when there's other options available. The main benefit of gene editing is of course the advancement of health in children who otherwise would be born with an inherited disease or disability. However, there have been great strides in the field of medicine when it comes to tackling these issues that do not carry the same degree of risk as the designer baby procedure. For example, in order to avoid hereditary diseases, parents can avail of third party eggs or sperm, which has become increasingly common in recent years. Or if they wish for their child to still be genetically related to them, the other option is, is IVF. However, these alternatives to designer babies can be seen to foreshadow the negative impacts surrounding um, this, this procedure. As many have um, already started abusing the current systems in place in order to ensure they get their ideal child. For example, in January 2011, an unnamed couple in Australia approached the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, fighting for the right to select the, next, the sex of their next baby. They had already had three boys, and had previously had a successful round of IVF, but they aborted when they found they were carrying two healthy twin boys because they were grieving a daughter. Instances like this will only become more prevalent if we give people more ways to cheat the natural order. You should not be able to show such blatant disregard for a potential life just because it wasn't the gender that you wanted. And if the house permits the creation of designer babies, we are enabling people to do exactly that. The fact the designer baby phenomenon is a relatively new concept should also be considered. What sort of impact would being a designer baby have on a child and how would it affect them? When talking about designer babies, the term procreative beneficence gets thrown a lot, around a lot. Essentially, it's this idea that designer children are expected to have the best life. But what kind of pressure does that put on a child? There is no guarantee that just because the genetic, their genetic makeup is perfect that they will be. You cannot edit their thoughts or feelings and how they turn out is still completely down to them. Just because a child is born physically perfect does not, um, does not guarantee that they will stay that way. 
There is no gene editing that can make you immune to life. Making your child designer does not make them invincible or immortal. The prospect of designer babies may also affect the parent-child relationship. As Josephine Quinteville observed, the modification of children in reproductive technology is turning parenthood into an unhealthy model of self-gratification rather than a relationship where unequivocal acceptance and love is the ideal and predominant focus. Is there a point? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you say that we are still in early days of this, or some of your teammates have yet. You are quoting research based off uh, relationships of already genetically modified uh, children and their families. So which one is it? How can how is it that you were able to quote research based off um, a, a, an area of health that one speaker has said is still in its early days, yet you are here saying you're allowed to quote research yourself? Well, I suppose because it's it must it's hypothetical research. So if you take it into consideration, like if you do start giving people the option to uh, pick and choose what what kind of characteristics they want in their child, that is still years away. But say it does happen, of course, that's then going to affect the parent child relationship, because then you're not becoming a parent based on, you know, you, you just want to be one. You're now basing it on the quality of the child. And I think that would happen inevitably. Um, but yes, um, the, it would be based on the quality of the child produced and therefore you'd be monetizing and manufacturing a bond and a love that should be natural. And therefore, regardless of the quality of the child, and therefore, in my opinion, it cannot be emulated. Ultimately, most of these submissions are um, hypothetical as we do not have a complete understanding of how genes work yet. But from what we do know and what we've seen so far, I am of the strongest opinion that if the house allows the creation of designer babies right now, in these circumstances, not only would that be irresponsible, but may even damage society more in the long term, given that gene manipulation does not just affect one person, but generations of people. So on that note, I would just like to finish by asking for a third and final time, why would you take that chance? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sophie, for that fantastic uh, maiden speech. Congratulations again, and thank you for joining us tonight to continue the debate. So now we turn to our third proposition speaker to continue the case for the, well, no, to conclude the case for the proposition. And Hello everyone, can you see me? Yeah, see and hear you, that's brilliant, thank you. Brilliant. Um, I saw with a few rebuttals. Uh, the first speaker on the opposition, uh, one of his arguments was that um, the human babies, or not, sorry, not, uh, the, uh, the genetic modification of human babies will result in a predominantly wasp society. Firstly, Wasps are already making up the majority of the population in the likes of the US, for example. Um, let's just follow some of the logic of the first speaker, uh, firstly. Um, following this logic, he is assuming that minorities themselves will naturally select themselves into extinction. What is the statistical probability of a black couple having a white child at the moment? It's fairly low, I would reckon. <laughs> it is a completely what if scenario in other in other sense second rebuttal uh just in response to sophie clark um 
Sophie Clark is trying to convince you on the basis of a technicality. What if we were to create designer babies right now? We can't create designer babies right now. So there is no point in asking this hypothetical question because it's impossible to create them as of right now. And the, even the motion, this house would create designer babies. There is no time scale in that motion. We're not talking about now necessarily. We can talk about now, but we can also talk about the future because the motion alludes to no time scale. So that concludes my rebuttal. So allow me to start my speech. Having listened to the arguments of the opposition today, you might be led to believe that we are debating a novel topic. However, that is simply not true. In reality, we've been editing our genes for decades. For example, just the other day, I got these brand spanking new 501 Levi's and uh, I put some nice patches. What? What do you mean I'm talking about the wrong jeans? The boring ones? Oh, all right. My point still stands. We have been doing our own form of gene selection for quite a while now. This has been done through the process of natural selection. It really isn't an alien thing. Who here likes dogs? I know most of you do, if you're a normal human being. I will assume that all, a lot of you are also relatively smart and know that many of your furry friends are direct descendants of wolves. We just selectively bred them until they became domesticated. Even the foods that we eat have been modified. If not for the discovery and adaptation of the potatoes found in the Americas, you might not have been here today to listen to me ramble. If you do not believe in genetically modifying anything, then you should also not believe in consuming any modern day fruits or veg and consequently enjoy your scurvy. I am aware that the implications of natural selection is very different for humans. In fact, it often comes off as crude to even use the two in the same sentence. Um, however, that doesn't mean that it isn't relevant to us. After all, we are just as much beasts as dogs are or cats or giraffes. Um, allow me to relate it a bit more to the human scenario. Your future children, should you choose to have any that is, will be a product of your own form of gene selection as it is. You never really think about it in that way, but when you are swiping left and right on Tinder, you are selecting genes. Oh my God, he has such nice eyes. Oh my God, he's so ripped. Our babies would look so cute. Need I say any more? In my preparation for today's debate, um, I watched a video of Richard Dawkins speaking on the topic. He used a very interesting analogy of which I'm going to put my own twist on, if you will. So a mother and father uh, go to their family doctor and they say, doctor, please, input our embryo with the necessary genes so that our baby will become the next Michael Phelps. Such a dialogue or scenario it tends to horrify people. Yet Dawkins asks, why is it that they do not view the hours of grueling early morning training that developing children are forced to do in order to become the next Michael Phelps in the same light? This contradiction is further highlighted by the fact that out of the entire population, only a very small percentage actually go on to become an Olympic medalist. After all, there are only three medals. 
the key difference between the two is that if we break genes, it may have an unknown long-term effect on future generations. But that is at the moment. This is an issue of practicality. If we allow ourselves to conduct further research, I have no doubt that we can solve many of the issues of which the opposition have been talking about tonight. One would be committing a logical fallacy by pointing out limitations in an area of research within which the experts cannot push the needle. We have to allow research to extend beyond what we know already. What is the point in criticising something that we know so little about at the moment? To conclude, my teammates tonight have shown you that religion should not muddy the waters of science. Furthermore, by avoiding the term designer babies, we can avoid fantasizing over a dystopian future rife with Nazi-like eugenics. This is not what this is about. The main issue with designer babies is one of practicality, not ethics. There is nothing ethically wrong about wanting to prevent future suffering. Current issues with designer babies, if you want to call them that, can only be solved if we allow ourselves to. If we do, we can avoid future suffering and sideline a whole host of debilitating conditions to the long corridor of history. This will be the next step in human evolution. Thank you. Thank you for that brilliant speech. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, so now we turn to the third speaker for the opposition to conclude the opposition's argument this evening, which is Anthony Magnot. All right, how's it going? Um, the possibility of genetic modification of a human embryo has many intriguing possibilities. It could help combat many genetic disorders, such as cystic fibrosis, helping improve the overall quality of life people experience. However, there is the potential for harm to develop from this discovery as well, largely due to societal biases and possibly some biological dangers as well. I'd like to discuss these possibilities in the following. The main application discussed for designer babies is to achieve an improved life for the child in question. This, as discussed, has largely been in relation to genetic disorders, but there is a potential to go further. If the reasoning behind genetic modification is to improve the quality of life of the child, then this could have the tendency of approaching a perceived optimum human ability. For example, a person's lung capacity is genetically linked, so the argument of optimizing this lung capacity is one that may follow from this and could still be an argument to help the individual specifically in this alteration. But what about more subjective human abilities? The spectrum of human intelligence is large and complex, and although different abilities are better suited to different tasks, people often have biases to which they perceive to be better. For example, you may have one individual with a flair for subjects such as mathematics due to a heightened ability for logic-based problem solving, and another individual drawn to humanitarian studies due to their ability to communicate, empathize, and understand others. Often people will make a personal decision on which of these is better to have, even though arguably neither one is better than the other. In fact, we can see this based on our careers. An accountant or engineer, for example, will be paid significantly more than a social worker, even if the amount they work is the same. And therefore, working on the initial idea of achieving the best outcome for the child 
Would a parent not be influenced to push their child towards the career path with higher societal benefits, giving them a higher quality of life, and therefore, if they had the ability, attend to that initial starting point to influence that outcome? This is where human bias could misuse such a tool. If there is a societal preference towards a certain type of person, genetic modification could directly or indirectly result in a tendency towards this type of person. As a biological result of this, there could be an abundance of similar gene types due to the trending behaviour towards particular genes, which would result in a lack of biodiversity, causing a potential weakness to disease. As a societal result, there could be two different ways issues arise. For more authoritarian regimes, there could be a direct influence from the government in altering these processes to produce results deemed more favourable to the state. In societies such as our own, there could be more indirect influence. We currently have a push for people to move towards STEM-related career paths. This can be seen by the financial enticement for these pathways, as well as government advertising. Therefore, if people could help further solidify success in this direction, we may see a drop in people with skills and other necessary positions, which could have serious damage to their societal structure. Furthermore, this is assuming that any modification that a parent would consider would simply be for the child's abilities. The previous speakers have given examples on how parents can have their own preferences in mind on things sure. such as gender. Sorry? Point of interest? Yeah, go ahead. Um, which is more cruel? Giving children a predisposition to be good at math or what we have in reality currently, uh, forcing children to do the likes of 10 hours a day of practice to become the next John Nash, which is what a lot of Chinese students do in preparation for their Gaokao, which is the uh, equivalent of the A-levels in China. Well, I mean, that's that's also bad, like, but I don't think that's an argument for um, against this. I don't think that you should genetically modify people so that they're better suited to the role. You should just let people, if they wish to do it, do it. Um, the previous speakers have given examples on how parents can have their own preferences in mind on things such as gender, so there's always the possibility that parents could have their own idealised image of family in mind when making these decisions, which could commodify the bond between parent and child, as well as creating all sorts of issues for the child when knowing this is its origins. Now, these are rather apocalyptic scenarios I've described, and the odds of this happening are rather low, but there is potential for it still, and if we are to allow for genetic modification, it would imply that there is some maximum threshold of alteration that once passed we no longer deem acceptable to further for further modification to happen. The question of setting this threshold is a large one, and is it one that we can ever truly come to an ethical conclusion on, even if we aren't considering the involvement of the state or the superficial cosmetic applications? I hope you consider these possible issues when making your decisions tonight and vote opposition. Thank you. Thank you for that speech, Anthony. Thank you. For that so that is the debate is now over but now it's a chance for you to ask questions to any speakers or um the proposition or opposition uh on what they've said tonight uh to try and challenge them so we'll start with questions directed to the proposition does anyone have any questions directed to the proposition no Questions to the proposition? Yes, Matthew Sullivan. Uh, since absolutely no one else wants to ask any questions to the proposition, um, a movie that I watched about half of once uh, is called Gattaca, and it talks about this society where genetic modification is very common, 
and like you know, all genetic disorders have been modded out of people and everyone is modified to be really really good and there's this one kid who doesn't have any genetic modification and he's just terrible and uh, he has a terrible life because he's normal and everyone else is this superman so how do we if we do allow people to create designer babies prevent a world where the rich just create these superhuman babies and the poor are stuck with their regular normal babies and then so rich people become these superhumans and poor people become these well subhumans because they'll be normal humans but they'll be worse than the superhumans uh anyone from the proposition can choose to respond to that i'll just um, who's uh you know i'll let you say sure okay um the simple answer regulation um we are talking about a process that will need as much regulation as possible uh just the same as any other uh, medical operation it will go through the necessary tests blah blah blah, blah. like what for example the, the COVID-19 vaccine will go through as many stringent regulations and tests as possible it's very unlikely or I couldn't tell you one thing that you could get from the NHS that has gone through zero regulation uh, even when you go to get plastic surgery you are assessed and you have to pass certain health tests in order to actually get it if you get me. Um, in terms of trying to, um, you know, prevent a bit of skewness happening where uh, rich people uh, are obviously a lot more able to afford it than maybe uh, poor people, and thus they kind of get pushed out of the population. Um, that's very much a question for uh, maybe government policy and economics. So in the same way, we kind of approach redistributing income um I, I would again like the, in a way in a way this is very early days I think we're talking about as you said a completely sci-fi scenario at the moment and so I'm not quite sure if any of us or anyone is able to fully answer that question thank you uh for that response uh do we have a response from the opposition on this please Um, could you repeat the question just sorry? Um, just so I know exactly what I'm answering. Matthew, do you want to repeat the question if that's okay? Um, in short, it's uh, how do you stop rich people from making their kids be really superhuman and then poor people are stuck with normal kids so rich people <laughs> are like superhuman? Um, well, I, I, to be honest, I don't really know. I don't really know how you stop rich people from doing anything. So I suppose if they can do it, they can do it. <laughs> Okay, thank you for that. Uh, so now, any questions directed to the opposition? Questions directly to the opposition? Jack McAfee. Oh, I decided to turn on my webcam for this. Uh, just got it. So this is very much something that I heard from the first speaker, and I asked him it in chat, but I didn't get the chance. He said that society will become primarily uh, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, but why? It doesn't particularly make sense since the general idea is that genetic modification would be a choice. What it really feels like the argument is, is that he's trying to suggest that these people feel like they are inferior 
and that they would want to breed themselves out, which I don't think anybody particularly feels that way in those minority groups. So it really felt like the opposition was making a racial inferiority argument there. I just want to get your opinions on that because collective responsibility, of course, he's not here anymore, but is <laughs> has to be raised. Yes, yeah, so I will ask if any of the opposition wish to address that point. You can disagree with whatever was raised, but if the opposition wish to, to say anything, Anthony or Sophie. Um, actually, Ben did text me his answer to this when he saw it in the chat, just so I was aware. So he just said, um, it's not me who feels uh, superiority, but it's a sick human bias. More black babies in America are aborted than die of AIDS, so there's clearly an, a bias against black babies. Not on, on, not unrealistic to imagine this would extend to designer babies. So that, that's all he said, and said hopefully that answers the question on his behalf. Okay, you a proposition to respond? I'd like to respond to that. Go ahead. Whose decision is it at the end of the day? It's, it's not a causal link. It is entirely down to the decision of the parents. There, it, it, there isn't a eugenics program running in the United States. No one is forcing members of the population to decide what color that they should have their baby. As I said in my one of my rebuttals, um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the United States make up the majority of the population already. So clearly, to the opposition, we are already living in this nightmare scenario. And I'd like to just kind of reiterate what Jack, like Jack was saying. Um, in order for such a scenario to play out, they'd have to uh, think that they were inferior, inferior to begin with. And I highly doubt they do think that. And you need not look any further from the riots you saw this summer. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for that response. Any abstaining questions? So these are questions neither directed directly to the proposition or the opposition, but just in general. Uh, Grant Warren. Yeah, I just wanted to ask a question of both the prop and the op, and that I don't think this issue's been touched on enough, but. At some point in the future, this technology probably will become available in a, in a mass way. It, it will be available to either the, the richest in society or it will be available to people to just de decide the characteristics of their children. We have to be you know, aware of that. That probably will occur at some stage in the future. When that happens, does that mean that children who are born with disabilities such, you know, children with Down syndrome, for example, or, you know, in society, we teach people not to judge people based on the way they're born, but due to something they can't help. Does that mean that we, we are effectively, we should effectively cull all the people in the past who have had, you know, genetic or, you know, born with some kind of defect? Does that mean that these people were a mistake? I think it's a very important moral question to ask. Sorry, um, I will go to the proposition to respond uh, on that first. I don't mind responding if anyone else wants to do it. Um, okay, I guess I'll respond. Um, the scenario in which you're describing, it's not, it, it's, 
it almost sounds like uh, you know, like it, this isn't already what's happening. Um, but what the scenario you described is not uncharacteristic of current day healthcare, um, especially in the United States. Poor people already cannot afford healthcare as much as rich people. Um, to answer your question, uh, do we think that uh, people with disabilities are undesirable? Um, no, obviously not. Uh, I, I personally, I don't have any. Uh, I'm lucky enough to not. Well, not lucky enough in that sense. Well, I'm lucky that I don't have like a disability in a sense. But um, a lot of people with disabilities bring a lot of joy to people's lives, and I think it would be very foolish to suggest that these people are undesirable or a mistake in that sense. Um, but however, you cannot necessarily disregard uh, maybe the, lament the, the feelings of the people with these disabilities about what life could have been had they had the chance to maybe take away their disability. Doesn't necessarily mean they were a mistake because obviously they are still living with a lot of joy in their lives. Nonetheless, there could possibly have been a lot more joy in it had they not had the disability. Thank you for your response. Um, and now to the opposition to respond to this point. Anthony or Sophie, either or. Um, so the gist of it is basically, is this um, criticizing people with disabilities if uh, we're genetically altering the disability? Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's what like the proposition would be arguing, but I think that it has the cause of um, like subjecting this. Like that's an issue. Like, uh, what is your own interpretation of what's good and what's bad when it comes to it? I think is the only thing I could really say to that. Okay, thank you. Any more questions to the proposition? One last quick round of questions. Proposition. No opposition. No abstaining questions, anyone? No, oh, yep, yeah, one, Jack. Oh, Jack, do you want to ask it? Uh, yeah, I just want to ask one, really, and it's, I don't really think that the moral kind of argument has been put on as much. So with morality being, you know, having the choice to do something and then doing it, does this exactly, is it morally right or is it morally wrong? That's pretty much just what I wanted to ask both sides. Is it morally right or morally wrong? Very short, quick answers. Proposition, morally right or morally wrong? Completely dependent upon your own beliefs, Jack. Um, I mean, if you take it from the perspective of an American, you have an American flag in your back, uh, I'm, I suppose you might think it's morally right given the, uh, the liberties enshrined in your own constitution. So. Uh, I think well I'm not American I just have the flag <laughs> but yeah you're right um, but I think at the end of the day um, just as with attitudes having changed over history with regards to abortion uh, people have generally uh, well this is in light of the recent debate uh, in the past week and a half uh, people have generally settled with the idea of uh, it basically coming down to the individual so the uh, choice of the woman. So similarly, I feel, again, it should really come down to the choice of the individual again in this case. 
Thank you uh, for that response. And opposition, quick response on this, morally right or morally wrong? Um, I would agree with the proposition. It is, uh, it's a personal preference as to whether or not you think it's morally right or wrong. You know, if, if you're really desperate or you're, you, you know, there's a real high chance that your child's going to have um, some sort of abnormality and you don't have any other options or, you know, this is hypothetical and obviously further into the future whenever it's a better and more a stronger process. But, you know, in that situation, I don't think it is morally wrong. But like, if it's if you're doing it for, you know, superficial reasons, like I want my child to have blue hair or blue hair, blue eyes or blonde hair, you know, then I'd say it's moral. It's morally questionable. But again, it is it really is down to personal preference. Brilliant. Thank you very much for those responses. So that is the end of the questions. So now we go to the vote on speaker ability. So this is where we have a vote based on the speeches that you've heard tonight. So this is purely based on the speakers, not your own personal opinion going into the debate. Uh, this is based on the speeches and which sides you believe presented a better argument. So all those that are in favour of the proposition presenting a better argument tonight, please raise your hand and say aye for the vote of speaker ability. Aye. Have aye. we got one? At least we got one. Have we got two? <laughs> aye. Okay, well, three. Aye. <laughs> okay. Mm, looks like that's nine people. Brilliant. Aye. Thank you. Could you lower your hands now? And could all those who believe the opposition gave a better argument, please raise your hands and say nay. Jacob's left his hand up. Oh, Jacob, you've left your hand up. So I'm going to lower your hand. Uh, Mr. Secretary. Ah, uh, that looks like eight. Eight. And could you all lower your hands now, please? Um, and all those that believe uh, the wish to abstain, um, please raise your hands now. Thank you. Cool. Two. Brilliant. Can we have the vote of speaker ability, please, Mr. Secretary? With nine votes for the proposition, eight votes for the opposition and two abstentions, the proposition just barely has it and this house would create designer babies thank you very much thanks to you to all our speakers tonight and everyone who attended please remember we have some great events coming up uh two lit talks um in the next few weeks so that's a brilliant way to end this semester and next week we have our godkin debate so if this is the first time you've spoken this year or you haven't spoken at all this year then please do sign up for that is that next week emily i think yeah. Yes, it is. It is next week's debate. The motion is this house would support mandatory vaccination. Um, so if that gets you interested and you're new to the society this semester, get in touch with me or anyone on council. Yes, brilliant. And it's a great uh, competition. Um, you know, it's produced some amazing winners, uh, you know, like myself uh, last year. <laughs> so please do, if you want to get involved in it, please do participate. And that's a great thing to get involved with. Uh, so yeah, please sign up for that next week and we've got our lit talks as well, as well as our ordinary debates for the rest of the semester on the term card. Please message the page if you want to get involved in those. But thank you everyone for coming. Thank you for continuing to support the society and we will see you soon. So good night from me. See you soon. Bye bye. Can I just say one final thing before we disappear? Yeah.
have <laughs> one more announcement. Um, so some people have gotten in touch with me over the past few weeks about wanting to like suggest a motion for next term. Now is the time to do that. So on the Litter forum I posted a couple hours ago, we have like a Google spreadsheet where anyone can go in and type in the motions that they want for next year. And then and we'll go through that. There'll be a meeting. We'll discuss them all. It'll be great. So it's on the Litter forum. And if you're not in the Litter forum, get in touch with one of us and we can add you. So, yes, yeah, I'm so sorry, Emily, for forgetting to mention that. Yeah, there on the litter reform, you can suggest motions for next semester. Um, and also, uh, there is a going to be, I think, and also a suggestion thing for great debates as well. So, Ryan, I think we'll post as well on that with you, Emily. So, that'll be something that you can get involved with in suggesting motions for both our ordinary debates and our great debates. So, that's going to be really good and we'll have a meeting where we vote upon those so do get suggesting and if you're not in the litter forum or the litterific other page uh, group that i can't really talk about the uh, unofficial uh, group then please do not hesitate to message anyone on the council and we'll sort that out so thank you finally good night i hope you enjoyed the debate I'll see you soon bye bye